Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Running the 615 Podcast. This is your host, Drew Jones. And when I say welcome back, I truly mean that. It has been a minute since the last episode we had with Jim Wyatt of the Tennessee Titans. That was a super fun interview to get to talk to him. Since that interview was recorded, though, it has been an interesting couple of months. Nashville has been under a stay-at-home order, and other than my girlfriend, Birdie, I haven't really seen anybody in the past two months. That all changed about a week ago when one of my best friends, Hugh Mundy, came through town, and we were able to sit down and record episode 14, which you are listening to right now. As you know, I record all of these podcasts via an in-person interview, which is actually one of my favorite parts about doing this. But as you can imagine, it's not the easiest thing to schedule in-person interviews when you are in the middle of a quarantine. So it's been a while since I was able to record these. He has been a big part of my life over the past 10 years. We've run a lot of miles together. Hugh and I first met via the East Nasty Running Club way back in its early days in 2008-2009. I truly believe that we were destined to become good friends all along. Whether it's running, music, talking trash, kind of all three of those are a big part of who we are. And almost every funny memory I have from the past 10 years somehow involves Monday. Hugh was born and raised in Dallas, Pennsylvania. He started running in junior high and was lucky to have some great mentors along the way to help get his running career started. Hugh had an awesome high school coach who was super helpful in helping Hugh kind of find his stride in running and ultimately helped him pick the distance that Hugh ran in high school. And Hugh was able to win a state title his senior year in the 800 meters, which is an awesome accomplishment. After high school, Hugh went to college at Notre Dame, where he got to run for the Fighting Irish, and Hugh has some great reflection about what it was like going to school at Notre Dame and and getting to run in college. After college, Hugh went to law school and then became a lawyer, which was his career path. He was first a public defender in New York City and then eventually came here to Nashville. It was here that Hugh actually found the sport of running again, and luckily for me, that was about the time I was really starting to get running a lot, and it was becoming a big part of my life. As I mentioned, we met at the East Nasty Running Club, and that's that's kind of where it all started. Hugh eventually moved away from Nashville when he became a law professor, and he has lived in Chicago now for the past several years, where he teaches at John Marshall Law School. Hugh has been voted Professor of the Year on multiple occasions, and we talk in this episode about his love for teaching, which is cool to hear about. If you are lucky every now and then, you will have a friend in your life that makes life better. Hugh has certainly been that for me. I've always been very thankful for his friendship, and it was super cool to just sit down and talk to a friend that I know really well, but also learn some new things about him. It was a fun interview, and I know I say this a lot, but I'm quite certain you will all feel the same way. I appreciate it, as always, for tuning in and and listening to this episode, everyone, so thank you for that. Here we go. Without further ado, the Professor Hugh Mundy. Super excited today. I'm sitting across from one of my best friends, Hugh Mundy. You guys have already heard me interview a guy by the name of Scott Bell, who I've run a lot of miles with. The other guy in my life that I've run a lot of miles with is Hugh Mundy, and we've been waiting for this day for a while. Hugh, it's good to see you, man. Great to see you, Drew. We've got a lot of first here on Running the 615. This is our first interview in the middle of a pandemic quarantine. You're actually the only one agreed to come to the Running the 615 studio during this time. We also have our first studio audience here. There you go. Two girls with blonde hair, super tan, both girlfriends, and are both super excited. They're already not paying attention. So we're doing great. We're going to talk a lot about you today. Is that all right? I'm excited. Yeah, I love talking about me. Okay, good. And we're going to talk about running, of course. You are no longer a Nashville resident, but we're going to we're gonna conduct this interview as if you are still a Nashville resident. I feel like I've never left. There you go. Even better. So let's talk first about your running, Hugh. Tell me how old were you when you started running? How did it enter your life? And then what is it about running that 
stuck to make you kind of keep with it? If I can sort out my life and running in chapters, chapter one would be with my mother's inspiration. I was about 10 years old and this was part of the jogging boom of the late seventies, early eighties. And I remember my mother one day just decided to go out for a jog with a friend of hers. And my father had purchased her, I know you're a Brooks guy, but had purchased her a pair of Nike Lady Oceanas. And my mom went out for a jog. And I remember just being intrigued by that. And look, if I'm being honest, I was probably a bit of a mama's boy and and wanted wanted to join her. So soon enough, her friend lost interest and I became my mother's jogging partner circa 1981. And and that's kind of how it all began. Well, we were going to get way into the interview before we discussed the fact that you're a mama's boy, but thank (laughs) you for jumping head first into that. So you're about 10 years old and you start running. So you're not even in junior high yet. No, not at all. Yeah. And this was about fifth, sixth grade. I think running was just catching on in terms of road races and just a general interest in the sport. So it was an interesting time to be a part of it. But I didn't know any better. I just, as I said, just thought it was fun to kind of hang out with my mother and and jog around the neighborhood. And that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of how it all started. So when was your first quote unquote race? How old were you when you first decided, okay, I'm going to test my abilities? Yeah. So it was shortly after that. And there were no fun runs at the time. Running for kids hadn't really taken hold. And so there was a five mile race in my community. And I was running about three miles a day with my mother. And when you're a kid, three miles, five miles, it seems all about the same. And there was a race called the food for fitness five miler. And I told my father, I wanted to, I wanted to run. And of course he knew that three and five miles were different when you're running, but he let me run in it. And I'll never forget. We were coming around about the fourth mile and my father was out there probably concerned about whether I could get past the three or so miles. And I was doing pretty well. And I still kind of remember the look of astonishment on my father's face at the time. Like this kid's doing pretty well. Yeah. And the race ended on a long hill. And I remember crossing the finish line. And I think my dad was just stunned that I managed to get the whole race through. And all I cared about at the time was there was a pair of shorty shorts that every finisher got with some like running carrots and heads of lettuce because it was food for fitness. All I wanted was those complimentary shorty shorts. So that pretty much began my racing career. I mean, we we are setting up so many great themes already. (laughs) Mama's boy, shorty shorts, very early on in your running career. So this is in Dallas, Pennsylvania growing up, right? Yeah. And then did you already start running track? and cross country in junior high? For whatever reason, I wanted to participate in a sport that was affiliated with my school. And as I'm sure you recall, there were a lot of youth sports opportunities, little league and and soccer and basketball. But I really felt that I wanted to run with my school's logo, you know, as a participant. And there were two options in seventh grade, cross country and football. And I was not, I was not going to play football. I did they don't not give have... out shorty shorts on the football team. <laughs> yeah. Dang it. Yeah. Yeah. No mama's boy was going to play football. So cross country. And I honestly, when I heard cross country, I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I hadn't heard those words associated with running. And I remember uh, the coach of our junior high cross country team was also the teacher in a class called self-perception. And it was kind of a health class, but also this kind of progressive self-esteem kind of class that was popular in the mid eighties where you would go and you would watch movies about kids who smoked marijuana and then tripped for the next 20 years or, or you know, just, just where they say to us that hey, like th- maybe you should or should not go down this road. Right, we'll leave it exactly. up to you. Exactly. The idea was shouldn't, but it drove a lot of kids towards should. <laughs> l- l- luckily for me, I took the other path. This guy's name was Dave Junta, and he taught like this weird smorgasbord of classes at our small rural public junior high school. He taught world geography, self-perception. He was the cross-country coach, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. 
And I remember going up after self-perception and telling Mr. Junta I wanted to join the cross-country team. I don't think that there were any cuts at that point. I think if you wanted to join, you were officially on the team. And so shortly thereafter, I became a member of the cross-country team. And yeah, that was maybe fall of 83. That's where it began. So, I mean, we're good friends. I've known you a long time. I know a lot of your story, but I don't know all of it. Do you remember, even in the early days when you were running, feeling like you had a gift for it? Like it was something that came natural and there was some degree of, I am built for this. Probably, but I owe a great debt of gratitude to Miss Dave Junta, Mr. Junta, and other coaches that I've had who recognized that talent in me before I recognized it in myself. And Dave Junta, I recall vividly, I, I ran well without even really knowing it. He put my name in the school newsletter, which basically is getting like an above the fold headline in the New York Times when you're For in sure. seventh grade. Yeah. And I think he was trying to motivate me to stay with it. And it was an interesting team and I wasn't completely invested in it at the time. And, and honestly, I kind of just felt good about running and didn't love the competitive aspect of it early on. And I think he was trying to motivate me to stay with it. And so I owe a lot to him and most of the other coaches I had at that age. So before I recognized it, I think they recognized it in me. You said your dad, when you ran that race, your dad had a look of like, man, this is pretty astonishing that my son can run five miles, not even necessarily knowing what that distance is. What was your mom's take on it when you were running alongside of her as far as just like your first kind of crack at it? It's interesting. My mother has been running consistently about three or four miles a day since that first run she took in 1981. And I don't recall that she's ever been in a race. She seems to run for the joy of running. And I think that's what she wanted from me. I don't recall ever being pushed to be competitive by either of my parents. My dad was surprised, I think, when I ran well, and, and my mother never pushed me at all. I, however, got pretty into the competitive aspect, and there was a fairly competitive 12 and under category in northeastern Pennsylvania in the early 80s, and it felt like the Olympics to me. So shortly after I sort of got over the fear of running for competition. I became a pretty intense competitor, but not really with the urging of my parents just because of how I was hardwired. Yeah. So you go on to run high school. Again, I, I know this because it's one of my first memories actually of us being friends is me seeing a VHS tape of you running in high school in, in our East Nasty days. That was your senior year, right? I, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Your senior year, this is for track, right? You won a state title in the 800. Is that right? Yeah. That's so right. that's, I mean, that's, that's a tough distance, but I mean, to win state in anything is a huge accomplishment. What do you feel like was the result to how you got to your, got to a place of a state champion in running? Like just your, your work ethic, like I'm, imagine a combination of both. If chapter one, in terms of the initial inspiration to run was my mother and, and enjoying running with her, chapter two was my high school coach, a guy named Bill Cavache. So when I started running, we didn't really have any coaches in the area who understood the science, right? And as an aside, Coach Cavache and Mark Miller are probably related at some level and in, in, many, in many ways. But Coach Cavache was new to the area as a calculus teacher and had run for Harry Groves, who was a legendary coach at Penn State and, and coached many national and international teams. And he came to our area with a real understanding of how training works. Before, we were just going out and, and running without any real sense of the science behind how to get fit. And he came along and again, kind of recognized that I had some talent and he directed me to the 800. I mean, he identified that as the distance that would be best suited for me. Our training was very specifically geared to whatever distance we were running. 
And so again, much like I didn't recognize my talent, but others saw it in me. He basically said, here is your distance. This is what it's going to be. And it was probably a combination of you don't have great endurance and you don't have great speed. So here's the 800 where you just run (laughs) as hard as you can for as long as you can. And it's kind of the perfect distance for someone who is not terribly suited towards either speed or endurance there you go and it's also i've talked about this already on the podcast it's also kind of considered the most painful as far as just a track running event right because it's it's supposed to be fast it's all you got you just said run as hard as you can as long as you can but it's it's certainly long enough that you get to feel a pretty decent amount of pain very early on into that race and that was coach Kavache's outlook this is a kid who can tolerate pain this is a kid who wants to win, who has a, you know, and, and so many kids at that age do have a real competitive drive, but can tolerate pain for two minutes or something along those lines. And there were other kids in who he identified. We, we had kind of a community of the willing on our cross country team, kids who could really push themselves, who might not have been the most talented. And, and quite honestly, that included me, but with a coach who knew how to bring out the best in the kids who were willing to willing to tolerate that pain threshold. Kavache was was pretty helpful just in you becoming the runner that you became. I mean, I, he'd probably be, would you put him just kind of at the top of the list as far as somebody who just helped your running career? Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that, and and it really is a unique combination of an athlete and a coach who can bring out the best in that athlete. And maybe we're 10,000 other coaches who could have coached my high school and it wouldn't have worked out for me in the way that it did. So it was a unique and very special relationship and, and remains to this day a great relationship. I mean, I, I, I still faithfully keep in contact with him and, and owe him a huge debt of gratitude, not only in terms of my running, but just in terms of the person that I try to be in my everyday life. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. Like our friend, Mark Miller, he is also a founder of East Nasty, but he is also a calculus and a running coach. So that's a unique blend right there. My mother is chapter one and coach Kavache is chapter two East nasty. And that relationship after many years of not running would really be kind of chapter three in terms of the relationships I built and, and Mark Miller and coach Kavache they've got to meet someday. I mean, I think that that has to happen. So you win the state title in the 800. That was your senior year. Did you feel going into that like it was your race to win? And did it feel like you were where you wanted to be competition wise to be a senior in high school, getting ready to run and arguably the biggest race of your life at that point? And then we'll talk in a second about college running there afterwards. But like that was the race. And like, did you feel the, I guess, the magnitude of that race? I probably did. And I'm going to tell another coach Kavache story, but 10 years after that race, I was inducted into our high school hall of fame and coach Kavache made the introductory remarks. He told a story to the audience and it was a big audience, right? Huge audience yeah, yeah, capacity crowd. He talked about a couple of races that he was especially proud and, and the state championship was not one of them he actually said to the crowd, he had no choice but to win that race. And I remember talking about you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember thinking I had no choice. I didn't know at the time. There were seven other runners. I had a choice. He he had. Yeah. So I think he felt, and I felt at the time my high school career would not be complete or successful unless I won that race. And so I kind of remember at the time feeling that, that if I don't win this race, then there's not going to be, I'm I'm only going to be sort of a qualified success. And so, and you're 18. So I just remember thinking like, this is how it's got to be. So that race, in some ways, I felt less pressure than in many others because it felt so important in many ways, but also like I had no other choice. This is going to have to happen. It has to happen. Uh, And you know, it's a tiny high school in Pennsylvania in 1989, but you feel that this, as many high school students do, that your weight of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you haven't seen anything else. So this is, yeah, it feels like this is, is a kind of moment and, and you have no other choice. And in some ways, 
that kind of sense of having no other choice also lend itself to a sense of certainty that I'm going to win this race. Oh man, that's super cool. So it's late eighties, you win the state title and you decide to follow in your father's footsteps and you go run for the university of Notre Dame. You had been an Irish fan since, since early days, I'm sure. Yeah. Talk about sense of certainty and no other choice. Yeah. That was, yeah, that no was it. Yeah. Again, because we told stories before when you arrive on campus at university of Notre Dame, they are in the middle of filming a certain movie, correct? Right. A movie that you might've heard of called Rudy. Yeah. Is in production when you arrive on campus and what, like, do you, do you have any memories from just seeing that? So I was actually a student at Notre Dame when they filmed Rudy. So it was after my freshman year, but interestingly, they were filming on the practice field because of course they're not going to get on the actual field where the Irish play maybe for a scene or two, but most of the, of the scenes were filmed on the practice field, which just by coincidence was adjacent to the track where we practiced every day. So we would see all of these extras from Rudy wearing the throwback football uniforms and having a smoke and eating at the sort of catered buffet table. In old football uniform with snipe in hand. Exactly. Yeah. So all, all of these guys who would then go film a scene and I didn't need any additional sort of sense of the mystique, but it was really kind of an amazing time to be on campus because that movie became so popular. And I think to the extent that a lot of people hate Notre Dame, and in many ways I can't blame them, but you couldn't have been on any more popular campus for fans of, of the, not only of the Irish, but of college football at that time. So, so it was interesting. Vince Vaughn was just getting rolling, right? He, as he was, that was him out of the gates. So Favreau, Sean Astin, yeah, a lot, a lot of those guys who went on to have really successful movie careers were all in in Rudy. But also at the at the time, you're 20, and it all feels like, well, of course, there's a major motion picture being filmed adjacent to the track. You know, like I'm it, an 800 state champion. Yeah, of course, it's yeah, movie it, it feels all like your birthright at that point. So, <laughs> so not, not I, I don't remember being in awe of any of it. It just feels like, sure, this is happening. Yeah. So I know Miller also told one story from your from your college running career. He said that when you, I believe it was in your first meet as a Notre Dame runner, it's a five-mile race, and at the two-mile mark in that five-mile race, you PR'd for the fastest two miles you've ever run in your life, and you've still got three miles to go. That was basically your intro to college running. Yeah, that's when I realized that Division One cross-country is different from Dallas, Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know, with with a graduating class of 170 or so, and yeah, in a small community. But again, I was running with guys who are still my close, close friends, but just these elite guys. And and there was a very sort of humbling. And I remember it was an, I had never broken ten for two miles, and I came through in 9:58, thinking I've got three miles to go and I'm going to get through it. But it was very humbling in a sense, because from about seventh grade on, I was winning races routinely. And at that moment, I thought, okay, I'm not going to be the best. I'm not going to be close to the best. And you know what? That's, that's going to be okay. But it it was a extremely humbling moment when that happened. Yeah. Well, very similar Monday to being a division one college athlete at the university of Notre Dame, being on the golf team at the university of North Alabama, similar in the fact that I worked really hard in Florence, Alabama to become competitive on my team the 10 guys that were on the team with me, let alone whoever we were playing in tournaments with, but exact same scenario as far as it just being eye-opening to go from not having a lot of competition to the nine guys on the team being just as good, if not better. And I also discovered Bud Light when <laughs> when, when, that, when that was happening. Which, yeah, anyway, that's a separate story. But So tell me about just your memories from then your kind of college career and, and running running for the Irish. In many ways, as we were talking about when I ran the 800 state championship in high school, there's a sense of certainty, but also as Coach Kavache said, I had no other choice. The sense of the humbling moment, the kind of sense of humility that went along with realizing that I was not going to be great at the college level was kind of liberating in a way because it enabled me to just kind of find the joy in running and to realize that I was going to be middle of the pack. And I was running with these guys who were great. 
part of that was was really it was really difficult maybe initially but then it just became kind of i'm going to get to be really good friends with these guys and become part of a team that is much bigger than my success as an individual and also to get to run and this goes probably to seventh grade when I said I just wanted to be part of a school team to get to run with the ND colors like that, that became a pretty special thing. Even if I was middle of the pack, even if I was running in the third heat in a mile in Des Moines in February, <laughs> it was just, it a, meant something. yeah, it meant something. And the pressure was way off, but I was getting to fulfill that kind of dream of running for your school. And so even though I was among, <laughs> among the least successful in terms of that era, guys on that team, it was still a hugely important part of my life and completely different from high school in many ways. So I was not getting the, the exhilaration of winning races and having any kind of success, but I was getting a kind of different fulfillment from just being part of a team and getting to be kind of a play a kind of supporting role, which was very cool. So I got to go to a Notre Dame football game, compliments of you finding two tickets a couple years ago for a night game, Notre Dame, Stanford. What a cool scene that was. It just it was a, a day made for college football. Irish played great, big win. And then the next day we went for a run on what was one of your old four mile routes around campus. And that's literally the only time I've ever seen Notre Dame. But that's just a, the mystique is definitely there. And to just run around that campus is, is a, it was just a neat feeling. So I became a Notre Dame fan that day. It's a cool place. As an Ohio guy, I appreciate you saying that because, yeah, I, there's no love lost between the Irish and the Buckeyes. So if I can convert one guy from Ohio to feel that mystique, that's a huge win. That was a cool day. So let's fast forward a little bit. Again, like this is a part of the story. I know you got away from running for a bit after college. You went to law school, obviously had a lot going on with that. And there was an amount of time, right, where you once you started running, it was a big part of your life. You did it a lot and invested a lot of your time in it. And then you basically kind of just, I guess, maybe got burned out and got away from it. And then when we actually met in uh, 2009, when East Nasty was getting started, that was like a, a rebirth for running in your life. Is that timeline pretty accurate? Yeah, I, I think it is. And that was incredibly important. And, and I think I never felt really burned out it was almost like the guy who plays football in college and then after college is asked to join up flag football league or so. It just felt like, okay, I, I did this really intensely for many years and now it's over. There's really no sort of conduit for for going to the, I knew I wasn't going to the Olympics. I had friends who were joining kind of elite teams and that was not going to be something I was going to be able to do. So it just sort of felt like, there's a hard stop on my running career. And that was about 15 years. And so I would sort of dabble in races every once in a while and, and have reasonably good outcomes, but nothing that indicated that that I had any real sort of future, at, even at age group wins. And then it wasn't until sort of chapter three, when I discovered East Nasty, that I was reinvigorated, as it were, in terms of not trying to win races, but just feeling that there could be a life after collegiate running. And it took about 15 years before I found that community and, and came to that realization. Yeah. So getting back into running, and you've said this to me a couple of times, like since, you know, it seems like since East Nasty started back up, that's over 10 years ago that running has remained a part of your life. Just to kind of talk about like a broad answer as to what running has meant to you and just like what it has done for your life. You've admitted to me on more than one occasion that running has like just helped you out with your ability to kind of manage a balance in life, right? Just talk about what now that your running career has expanded a pretty decent amount of time, what's your what's your take on running? What does it mean to you? Like what is it about it that's just kind of allowed it to be such a big part of your life? Early on, it was all about when I was talking about realizing that I was very competitive at an early age and feeling that that was what running was. 
outrunning other competitors, even my, you know, my own teammates and having that kind of killer instinct running now is it's the opposite. It's about community and it's about building relationships and, and friendships. And again, it was later in my running life with East Nasty primarily that, that I realized that running always seemed very individual, very intensely competitive and very sort of zero sum in the way that you either won or you didn't win. And East Nasty really was a revelation to the extent that it became more about esprit de corps and building friendships and relationships and a sense of community. And that's what running is to me now. Running has always been, you know, I think when you're good at something, then you gravitate towards that thing. But running has always been, it just feels so fundamental to who I am that it's hard to separate it and say, this is what it's done. This is what it brings to my life. It feels in many ways like this is just who I am. And it's hard to separate it out and think about what it means to me because it is me. The East Nasty part, of course, for us, we I've talked to a couple of people that also kind of came along in it when we did. I mean, we were so early on. I mean, there was there was less than 20 people in East Nasty when we were getting it going. And those those first couple of years from not only the runs to the social aspect and so forth, like it just like it it, it was so unique in how it all came to be and like that. I feel like part of why East Nasty came into your life is so you could host one of the best karaoke parties ever to happen in life. That was maybe a little bit of divine intervention that that's happened. But what I mean, what a fun thing to be a part of that I know I will, I will remember that kind of two year window for the rest of my life. Yeah, it was better than I deserve. I was a, a public defender at the time and had a really stressful work life and didn't want running to add to the stress of my life. And I think any competitive runner can tell any, any competitive athlete, a lot of times what you call recreation can actually be stressful to the extent that you're worried about your times, you're worried about the place that you're going to finish at a local race. So it becomes almost an additional stress point in your life. And so that's one reason that I got away from running. And when I found East Nasty, as I said, it was really the opposite of that. And so it was just a great balance to my really stressful work life. And those Wednesday runs really kind of kept me balanced to the extent that they fell midweek and I knew I could be having a really difficult week, but I would land at 6 p.m., at the little house in East Nashville. And then it would just get me through the rest of the week and kind of balance things out. So it would have been great if it was a Saturday afternoon run, but there was something <laughs> about that Wednesday run that fell at exactly the right moment in terms of my work life. Yeah. And then the community of friends that we were incredibly lucky to find in that little two-year window was really special. No doubt. It's a lot, a lot of good friends still to this day. So let's just put a little bit of a, of a bookend on the running part. Tell me a favorite race or a couple races you've participated in and, and what do you consider ultimately just your crown achievement in running? That I'm still running is kind of my crown achievement in, in running. I'm, I'm a month removed from my 49th birthday. And so to get through it from 11, 12 on and to still find joy in running, that feels like my crowning achievement. There have been good wins along the way. Many of them happened in the late 80s. So the, the, the memories are getting a little bit fuzzy. But just doing something as a life pursuit has really been what I think is my biggest accomplishment, especially having gotten away for so many years. So that that would be the most memorable piece. And I think in terms of just favorite run, I could say the 1989 state championship, but it might've been this morning when uh, we were out with Scotty Bell and you on the Percy Warner 5.8, which is one of the best loops in the country on a beautiful day. I can't remember the exactly the way I felt after I won the state championship, but today I might've felt just as good. It's hard to know. Yeah, man. Today was a good one. And We've run more than once on that route. Today felt like one of the better ones. I, f I feel the same way, man. That was one that 
that I'll remember for a while. So you talked a little bit. I, I want to talk about your profession, being a lawyer and, and now a law professor. Public defender is a little bit of a different gig when it comes to be a lawyer. You already talked about some of the stresses that you had going on and that East Nasty just helped help that a little bit. Tell me about being a public defender in Nashville. What's just some pros and cons from, from having that job? It's a difficult job and, and I so admire the, the folks in Nashville who are working at that job still and, and in other places. I do remember, and this is, we became friends, oh, maybe 2009, right? I remember taking you underneath my wing, Mundy, like you were, you were an injured bird and I felt like you needed somebody to really be a mentor. So that's how I remember it. But yes, no, 2009 is yeah, correct. Yeah. Well, and, and not long after that, we became fast friends, but it was still early on. I represented a guy who sold a gun to the woman who killed Steve McNair. One of the biggest cases in this city's history. I was just becoming friends with you, one of the biggest Titans fans in, 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 in the city. And it, yeah, and I, I, I knew that pretty early on. I remember telling you about the case thinking like this guy is not going to speak to me if I, if I open my mouth about, but had been in the news and I figured, well, I might as well, I might as well be the one to tell him. And everyone was so accepting of that. Like I just remember that East nasty was the least judgmental, right? Like a lot of, a lot of people talk about how can you represent these people and East nasty just had a really, I don't mean to generalize, but a lot of my best friends just, maybe they didn't know everything there was to know about what being a public defender was, but it was a really accepting community. And I remember thinking about that and talking about like, look, I'm representing this guy. I loved Steve McNair as much as anyone. And those cases though, were a huge, it was a huge obligation, but also incredibly, incredibly stressful. And it happened at a time where I was just coming off a, a stint in New York as a public defender. Again, the balance that East Nasty created was really, really important because it's tough to represent clients that everyone else basically hates. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, being a public defender, there's, there's very few layups when it comes to those kind of cases. A lot of them or most all of them are pressure cooker, difficult situations, and you are representing the people that everybody has a bit of, of heat towards. So now that you are a law professor, you've been a law professor for 10 years as well, do you feel like that work experience has truly helped you in your role as you are basically now teaching people to do what you used to do? Do you pull on that experience quite a bit? Yeah, and I, I tell them stories about my career as a public defender, and it's now far enough removed that most of my students were in second grade when I was arguing cases <laughs> in Nashville and New York. So they look at me and think, God, you're old. But it's the right job for me. It feels much as running when you find something that you're good at and it just feels like you can get in a groove and there are good days and bad days, as you know, when you run, when you're a runner, you just kind of know that it's what you're meant to do. It doesn't feel, even your worst days don't feel like a huge struggle and there's some sense of accomplishment or some ability to reflect even on bad runs. And that is, teaching feels the same to me. I truly, probably like I did as a runner in, in most of my races, I always feel like this is going to be the best class that has ever been taught in the history of law school. And it never is. It never will be. Just as I always towed the line when I was starting a race thinking like, I'm going to kill it. And some days it's just not your day. That's how I approach teaching. I just feel so enthusiastic about it. And so sort of this is where I'm meant to be that I always toe the line thinking this is going to be a great class. I also toe the line with the same sense of butterflies that I always got as a runner and still do. I mean, we were on the starting line at the Music City, the rock and roll half last year, you and I together. And you could just tell by the look on my face like... I got, you know, like Monday's nervous, you know, like it's like, why? What's going to happen? Nothing. You know, you're not going to win this thing. And yeah, so I still, before I open my mouth at a class, think this is going to be the best and I'm going to make this happen and effectively, but also I'm scared to death right now. That feeling is very similar to the feeling of racing, even now at my advanced age. 
and without a chance of competing with the elites. Well, I'd love that answer though, bud. I mean, it's better to care a lot than to not care at all and to have a sense of I'm going to make this the best is just such a better mind frame than I hope I don't fall on my face in the middle of this. And from someone who shared a stage with you on some stand-up comedy and who's even sat in a class or two of yours, it's I do feel like you have some God-given running talent from somebody who's been really good at it for a long time, but you're also a really good law professor too. So it's cool that you've been able to find something that is a part of who you are and, and allows you to kind of use your strengths to be good at it. So I'm glad that you love doing it. Seems like a good a good thing. As you know, from we were just throwing the football in the backyard. You just saw my spiral. I would have been I would have been bad at so I was bad at so many sports, and so to find the one sport that you can kind of excel when I would have been just terrible at the vast, vast majority of sports, including golf. I feel that not only the legal profession, but most professions I would be ill-suited to do. And so to find the one that you love and you can kind of feel like you're effective on most days, that's a huge blessing because I would be bad at so many things in the workplace most of my professional pursuits would look like my spiral, which is a... I a, thought it was just because you weren't warmed up today. That was a duck. jewel. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate in both running and teaching that I found some things that I can do and and hopefully other people uh, other people feel good about it. For sure. Well, I've been golfing since I was five years old. I'm, I'm 40 years into the sport. It's, it's something that I've always really enjoyed and truly, truly, Hugh, one of my golfing highlights is playing on a country club golf course in South Florida where they filmed one of my favorite movies of all time, Caddyshack. And it was you that that set that up and and actually played golf with me that day. And there is absolutely still places around the course that you can see that it is in fact where Caddyshack was filmed. And that's a neat memory, man. So thank you for, for greasing the wheels on that. It was great. Yeah, you meet really interesting, eccentric, and, and very smart people in teaching in a law school. And the guy that set that up, as you recall, is a brilliant guy who is kind of a, a contracts scholar and also has a haircut that looks like Rod Stewart circa <laughs> infatuation. And I remember a that. great golfer, a great golfer. And so he was kind enough to set that up for us after I told him that I knew a guy that could play. Like I was going to, I was just going to kind of shuffle my way around the course, but this guy I was bringing in could actually play the game. And so that was all he needed, but that was a fun, that was a fun day yeah, for sure. Uh, that was a good one. Uh, so let's talk about Nashville for a bit. You left Nashville a while ago. We're in South Florida for a bit. Now I've been a Chicago resident for a while, but I do know you well enough to know that Nashville always still has a place in your heart and a city that means a lot to you. Just tell me about when you lived in Nashville, like your memory about it and like, what is it kind of about this city that's near and dear to you? There's so many things, but I drove in here in a teal Honda Civic in 2000. On a wing and a prayer. Yeah, exactly. Truly, like the all of the things that I owned in this teal Civic and got off on Wedgwood Avenue and rolled to my apartment. And I felt comfortable really from day one here. And it's interesting because I knew nothing about the city. But so many places you move in your life require some period of acclimation. And I just truly remember feeling comfortable right from the jump here. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the community and, and how welcoming it was then and still is now. All of the things that we love about Nashville, the music scene was something that I felt I could dive right into. The bar scene that did not feel, at least when I moved here in 2000, it felt just comfortable. And for a kid from northeastern Pennsylvania who went to school in Indiana, something about Nashville, the minute I got here, just felt very welcoming and comfortable. I don't think it's changed. Now, I know that Nashville has grown and there are things that have changed about it, but I think at its core, it's still the same city that I moved to in September of 2000. At least that's what I see. Maybe that's a little bit of a romantic vision when you're dealing with traffic and all of this development and all of the 
bachelorette parties and the Airbnbs, but that still seems to be that that's my vision of Nashville. And again, I had no business moving here. It has never been anything but welcoming to me. So about Nashville, then it's grown since you lived here, but you have still come back on a regular basis. Is there anything about Nashville, if you were mayor of this city, that that you would change or alter or try to make better? As I said, I think at its core, it's still a wonderful city. I mean, all of the things that everyone wants, like a public transportation system that's viable, sure. I want Nashville to remain Nashville, notwithstanding the amount of development that happens around it. And I don't know that that's possible, but I think it is based on the community of people that's here, right? You know, I mean, just like the tornado recently or the flood 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, Nashville was not the Nashville of today by any stretch, but the same kind of community spirit when people's homes were lost in the flood, people were suffering. You saw Nashville kind of galvanize in a way that was remarkable. And there have been so many knocks on Nashville, I think, as just given the surge in folks moving here and Nashville kind of losing its identity. But when that tornado hit, you saw the same kind of community spirit. So a lot can change in terms of development, in terms of people moving in from other places. But to see what happened during that flood, and that was shortly before I left, and to see what happened during the tornado... That's Nashville. I don't think any amount of development or new folks moving in can change that kind of core. And so that was as terrible as the tornado was. It was extremely heartening to see people stepping up because it indicated to me, look, Nashville hasn't changed. It's a community that is still so good and strong and supportive. That was an interesting, interesting moment to see. Good answer, bud. That's that's Nashville proud. So I know you're a music fan. We have seen, God, we've seen some great concerts over the years. We actually communicate a lot about music and just what uh, what you're listening to and, and what some of our favorite stuff is. Who's some of your favorite musical acts of all time? I mean, that's a, that's a broad question that we could probably just have a separate podcast about, but just who's some of your favorites of all time? Yeah, I mean, that, that that is a tough question. And I, I think moving to Nashville, I discovered so many new bands. Scotty Bell was talking about John Prine today, who was a guy that I knew very little about before I moved to Nashville in 2000, who then became one of my favorite artists. And it's terrible that we that we lost him recently. I kind of came of age as an indie rock kid, as you can imagine from Cross Country Runners, we weren't the most popular. We were always kind of kind of looking for maybe the alternative. The alternative to football was cross country. The alternative to Cinderella and Motley Crue was probably REM and so or Talking Heads. So I grew up kind of on that music and that's still a, a kind of a, all of those bands are still important to me. I was hoping that we were going to get to see Pearl Jam about a month and a half ago. Oh, and sadly, sure. the the stay-at-home orders kind of ended that. But that's certainly a band that, that has been really important to me. Pearl Jam that we got to see Wrigley Field in Chicago is a highlight of the many shows we've seen. That is just a great American band. Yeah. And Bieber is great. I, <laughs> I love that guy. It's amazing. <laughs> That is a show I've never seen, but boy, I've heard you talk about it for sure. I just want War on Drugs to play at the Ryman. That, like, I, I think that, that if I can only see one more live show and then we just shut down the world forever, that's the one that I want to see. Me too. How have they not played at the Ryman? I don't get it. I, I really don't. With people that have pull in this city, I feel like we can make that happen. That's a great band, man. I, I listen to them maybe more frequently than I do anybody else. And, and it was it was you who first sent me a song called Red Eyes by War on Drugs. It's, hey, hey, by the way, check this song out and you're welcome. Yeah, man. What's the best concert you've ever seen in Nashville? Oh, man, that's unfair. Yeah, the best concert that I've ever seen in Nashville. Well, I mean, you've got probably different answers, I'm sure. But. Yeah, after an East Nasty run in about 2009, you and Rod Jones and I basically snuck into Springsteen at the then Gaylord, now now the, uh, Bridgestone. the yeah. Bridgestone. Yeah, yeah, and... 
I mean, I had honestly, I grew up claiming to have seen Springsteen shows because you couldn't get any credibility as a kid on the East Coast if you didn't say, sure, I saw Springsteen at the Meadowlands in 1984. Not sure how I was able to sneak out and see that one. But, you know, we all laid claim to those classic four-hour Springsteen shows in the 80s. And, of course, I had never seen him before. And that show was pretty spectacular just because the guy is touring relentlessly, but still plays every show with such a passion and like it's his last in in many ways. So that was a definite Nashville highlight for sure. There's so many music venues in this city that are iconic in their own right. Even if the band isn't great, just being at the show and understanding the kind of history of these venues, it's incredible. So, yeah. Man, we've seen some good ones. I was just, I mean, I knew that answer could have gone anywhere, but you've already said if you could see any band in the world tonight at the Rhyme and you're going with War on Drugs, so no argument on that one. We've seen The Strokes in Vegas. We've seen My Morning Jacket and Arcade Fire at Bonnaroo, Pearl Jam at Wrigley. Got to see Bruce Springsteen for free just because I don't think anybody felt like questioning three guys in black hoodies that said <laughs> East Nasty on the side of it. They're like, I'm sure there was somebody. We'll just let them keep going. But lots of good shows in the past. I hope we got lots more in front of us, bud. So we are going to wrap this up with a thing called running the 615 speed sessions, Monday. All right. Do you know what the fastest mile you've ever run in your life is? Yes. And that is? 412. 412. Four minutes, 12 seconds. How old were you when you ran that? 18. 18 years old. How old were you when you ran 446 in Murfreesboro, Tennessee against a 15-year-old high school track meet? Trackster when I was on the infield barking at you like I was Kavashe. I so I think I ran a four forty six at forty five on the eve of your forty sixth birthday. On the eve, that's right. That's moving and grooving, man. That is that is fast running. I was glad I was able to see. It. Like I, I remember telling you when we were driving that track, I man. I was like, listen, man. I was like, I'm gonna be yelling at you. Like I'm not a fan of yours. Just know that I'm trying to help you hit this mark. And I was so excited for you to get to lap four so I could just dog cuss you from, from the inside of the track. I feel like I did pretty good with you it. Did. To be honest with you. Although with 200 meters left, I was in a, a heated race with an eighth grader whose mother was screaming at him. And I looked and thought like, she's younger than me. What am I doing? That's right. <laughs> well, all the, the thing I do remember from that is when you left that track meet, you had to hurry up and get back to Chicago because your law school had graduation the next day. And I'm pretty sure you left everything in Nashville, wallet, cell phone, clothes. Like you, like, you just basically went from track to plane and left everything in the 615 on your way out. I was in a tank in shorty shorts on that plane, drinking a gin and tonic, and it's a wonder Southwest still invited me on. <laughs> All right, here we go. Run the 615 speed sessions. These are quick questions. It doesn't really matter what your answer is. We're just going to fly through them. Are you ready? Yes. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Night. What is your favorite Nashville restaurant? City House. Coffee, tea, soda, water, or alcohol? Well, come on. <laughs> water. Well, <laughs> there you go. What is your favorite alcoholic drink? Gin and tonic. All right, sir. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Are you a talker or a listener? Listener. No, you're not. <laughs> Beaches or mountains? Mountains. What annoys you? Talking. Yeah, sure it does. <laughs> what is something that is not good for you that you do anyway? Gin and tonic. All right. What is something that is good for you that you wish you did more of? Water. All right. You're really on a roll. Do you like cookies or candy? Candy. All right. What's your favorite candy? You know, I had some uh, had some jelly beans in your stash today. Oh, and I think hell. they might have, yeah. That, that is that a mama's be. boy answer if there ever was. <laughs> what is your favorite sports team or teams? Well, do I have a choice here? The, the Fighting Irish. All right. Anybody else you care about? Well, the Tennessee Titans. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Thank you for that. What is your dream vacation spot? <sighs> Right here, right now. Indeed. Perfect. <laughs> what actor should play you in a movie? What did Scotty Bell say? He, he, he called me out as Josh Brolin. Sure. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Goonies, good call. <laughs> yeah. What is your favorite TV show or movie of all time? TV show or movie? You know what? I mean, all of the Rocky and Rocky sequels are probably... That's uh, and Creed. Can we throw Creed in there as well? That's all Philadelphia, It's man. all Philadelphia, yeah. I love it. 
Best way to recover after a long run or difficult run? Gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> what are you afraid of? Wow. That's, Jesus, man. We're getting pretty existential here. We're having to get you off that gin and tonic yeah, topic. Yeah, yeah. I was a little afraid of sitting down with you, and, and it's worked out well. You yeah. were afraid of yeah, this? Yeah, I think the unexpected. Yeah. Okay. Do you listen to music or no music when you run? You know, late, well, that's this is the speed round, so I'll go no music. I don't think that's accurate, but we'll let you <laughs> Lately, say it. Lately, yeah. How about this? Give me a favorite song that you like to run to when you do listen to music. So, gosh, that new Killers song is Okay, solid. we discussed Let's that one that. today. Yeah. That's good. When you're running, watch or no watch? Watch. Best part of living in Nashville when you lived here? Yeah, the running community. Would you rather go on an airplane or a road trip? Airplane. Well, you've got a road trip tomorrow, so good luck. <laughs> No, Perfect. I, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you actually fly a lot. Something you want to do before you die? So I would like to run Boston. Yeah, that's a huge omission on my running resume. Boston Marathon. Yeah. All right. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner? What's your favorite? Dinner. What makes you happy? Dinner. That was better than better gin and tonic, but we'll say it. Big dinner fan. What has running taught you? That's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, so much. I mean, as I said, it's part of who I am. So, yeah. That's good. Well, here's a tough one. What's a misconception about you? A misconception about me? Uh, that I'm calm. <laughs> All right. That is not true. Do you have a favorite holiday? Labor Day. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was there. That is the first and only time we'll ever hear that answer. Love that holiday. What in life do people get wrong, Hugh? And let me explain that to you. There's a lot of times that people feel like they have a grasp on something that they feel like this is the case. And you might think to yourself like, no, that's actually, that's not it. That's not correct. What do people get wrong? I think this notion that, especially as a teacher, that I'm prepared and calm and, and not terrified you don't think you always have to have it together to be able to, yeah. If you ever think you have it together, then you're never going to do anything because at least I won't because it's never together. There you go. Who inspires you? Inspired. You said your mom's been running yeah, for 40 my years. Mom, I got to say, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, she's a teacher. She's been, yeah, I think I'm most like her. She's still running. She's running every day, like every day. Pandemic be damned, she's out there. Ah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, it's fun. Do you have a favorite book or a favorite quote? Favorite book or favorite quote? I mean, I'm kind of old school. I mean, Catcher in the Rye is going to be my favorite book for sure. And there are a lot of good quotes. You're a real prince, Ackley, has been one of my favorites. <laughs> in Catcher in the Rye. In Catcher in the Rye. There you go. Yeah. What is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? perspective yeah too much pressure on my younger self yeah take a little bit of pressure off yourself oh yeah yeah uh, is it better to be physically tough or mentally tough no, mentally all right what is your favorite race distance you get to pick one now or ever mm, i guess ever the mile probably then is now would you rather run in the hot or in the cold oh cold yeah you'd yeah. like to run in the cold i hate the hot last question money it's a small one what is the purpose of life <laughs> so good well i mean that's a pretty good one just look gin and tonic is the answer to a lot of a lot yeah. of concerns in life yeah, it's yeah, it works well for any number of occasions, but it's a good balance. The, for sure. Yeah, the gin is the competitive spirit, and the tonic is just like it's going to be all right, man. Just level it off. I don't think anyone's ever explained a drink so well like that. That is perfect. <laughs> you are one of my best friends. You have been for a long time. I've been excited about interviewing you really since I started this podcast. So thanks first of all for allowing me to interview you. I've got so many special memories of our friendship over the past 10 years. I was talking about one the other day, Chicago Marathon 2012. Very shortly after I found out my dad was sick, I decided that I wanted to still run that race. And the race ran past your house at mile eight, and it was going to work out where you were going to run five miles for with me to just like you could kind of do a little loop. It was a rough day, of course, for more than one reason, but certainly just emotionally rough. And you ran from mile eight to mile 26 with me that day and saw me 100% at maybe one of the most emotional times in my life, especially at the end of that race. And even though that was, I guess what you'd label not like a happy moment, it's still like forever. I will remember there's just not a lot of people out there that are like, Hey, I know I can run five miles, but I'm going to run. 18 with you because I can tell you need it. Like that's just, it's special. 
Yeah, man, you just you've always been a friend that has been like truly helpful in my life when it comes to needing advice or just like wanting to talk for the sake of talking. And I was saying earlier, I could talk for 10 minutes and you'd give me like kind of a 30 second, like just here's my thoughts on it. And it's just, it's always spot on. So it's a long roundabout way to say, I appreciate your friendship very much and glad to have you in my life, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm delighted to to be here and to have this opportunity and, and the podcast is incredible, but also I feel the same way about our friendship. East Nasty kind of saved me at a low point in, in my professional life and, and in my personal life to a certain extent. And it was a true, when I say kind of chapter three, it was a kind of rebirth in terms of not only my interest in running, but in the power of running to build community. And you were a huge part of that. I haven't run 18 miles since we we ran that race together in Chicago, but it was incredibly meaningful. And it's like, that's why you run. That's an incredible, incredible gift. And so I'm, I'm just delighted that our friendship was forged around running. And I hope it lasts long after we're, we're not able to do anything but speed walk for sure well, well maybe there'll be a point in our year when we're running and you look at me and you're like hey by the way i'm at chapter 11 <laughs> like this is i'm bankrupt this is it we're, yeah. we're done hopefully we'll keep it going like your mom has but yeah man thanks for being here monday and we'll keep going as long as we can all right my pleasure thanks man